from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 7th. Today, a very public schism in the Republican Party, the security failures at the Capitol, and why rioters got kid glove treatment from police. The undersigned, Roy Blunt and Amy Klobuchar, tellers on the part of the Senate, Zoe Lofgren and Rodney Davis, tellers on the part of the House of Representatives, Report the following. So after hours of terror, after a violent siege just ransacked the Capitol, lawmakers returned to both the House and the Senate chamber to continue the debate and to continue to certify the electors from each of the 50 states. The report we make is that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the president and the vice president, according to the ballots that have been given to us. The whole process was interrupted when we were in the middle of a debate over the electors from the state of Arizona, which is the first state that faced an objection uh, that was disputed by the president's allies in Congress. So they kind of picked up where they left off Senators continued to give speeches, but certainly the events of the day changed all that. I mean, you had Senator Kelly Loeffler, who just lost her election race on Tuesday, saying that she had planned to join the objectors and side with the president and contest the results, even in her home state of Georgia. However, the events that have transpired today have forced me to reconsider, and I cannot now in good conscience object to the certification of these electors. I am Sungmin Kim, and I cover the White House for The Washington Post with an emphasis on Capitol Hill and White House relations. I I think it is worth pointing out that even after all this happened and even after all these lawmakers saw the the fatal consequences of, of spreading lies publicly about the outcome of the November election, that still at the at the end of the day, at the end of the very early morning when they were making these final votes, that eight Republican senators and the majority of House Republicans still voted to block Joe Biden's victory. I think it was Mitt Romney in a very powerful speech who implored, among many other things, for the Congress to unanimously certify the vote in both the House and the Senate to show the message to the world. You know, when the world is looking at America and condemning what is going on in the people's house, Senator Romney urged lawmakers to unanimously certify Biden's win. And obviously that didn't happen. And that just shows how broken particularly the Republican Party, still is at this point. And I want to ask about how President Trump has been responding to all of this. Clearly, there is more pressure than ever for him to, in unequivocal terms, say that Biden won the election, to just like make everyone stand down. Has he been able to do that? What has he said? He So he had just an evolving 
series of messages, you know, on Twitter and on other venues over the course of the day yesterday. But what was really stunning, but not surprising when it comes to this president, that when he was, when he posted a video urging this, frankly, mob to go home, he started off that statement by continuing to spew these absolutely baseless lies that fueled this catastrophe at the Capitol. I know you hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. Obviously, we saw his biggest platform, his biggest megaphone, Twitter, um, taken away from him for a period of time. And very early on a Thursday morning, so while most of us were asleep, the president issued a statement through one of his top aides, Dan Scavino, saying what is basically going to be the closest we are ever going to get to a realistic concession from the president. He said, even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out, which it's not true. Nevertheless, there will be an orderly transition on January 20th. And I think- And that seems so, like the way that he keeps phrasing this, like even when he is under this pressure to be clear about, look, I lost, Biden won, let's just get on with it, that that and, and even him talking about a, quote, orderly transition has a comma before it or has a but after it, you know, that that it's always like he can't let go of continuing to talk about the same untruths that are fueling this violence in the first place. Right. And that's precisely the problem here. He cannot look at just simple math and acknowledge that he lost. And I think for, um, you know, for a president who is so singularly focused on himself and his ego, I I think he has a very hard time grasping with the fact that he is the first Republican president in some time to lose Arizona and Georgia. Those are supposed to be Republican stronghold states. And he was a Republican president that lost both of them. And I think he just cannot handle that. And he just did not accept that these two traditionally Republican states could possibly vote for Joe Biden. And I'm wondering if this is a line in the sand for some of these Republicans. I mean, we've seen even some resignations in the White House in response to what happened yesterday. What are you seeing in terms of people who are looking at the situation, looking at the president and his inability to essentially stop what's happening and asking themselves, like, can I continue to stand here for this? Well, one thing to remember is that there are 14 days left in the administration. And so obviously a lot of these political appointees would have been out the door anyway. But it feels very much like too little too late in terms of like, oh, this is the moment you're going to stand up and decide to quit. (laughs) Right. But I also think yesterday's was so egregious that these people do not feel they have a choice. And, And they understand the perception that it gives to the public. You know, you know, Charlottesville wasn't enough. Lafayette Square wasn't enough. It's now this that is bringing you to, you know, pushing you to the brink, especially after he lost and you're about to lose your job anyway. Former White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who served many roles in his administration, was a stalwart Trump supporter. I just, I can't, I can't do it. I can't stay. It's a, it's a nothing thing. It doesn't affect the outcome. It doesn't affect the transition, but it's, it's what I've got, right? And it's a position I really enjoy doing. But you can't do it. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more of my uh, my friends um, resign over the course of the next uh, 24 to 48 hours. It was especially notable for Mulvaney because he wrote an op-ed, you know, just after the election that if the president loses, he will lose gracefully, um, which he did not. 
And I think it's interesting to see how quickly there have been conversations about things like, should we be considering impeaching the president again? Should we be considering the 25th Amendment? Talk to me about what are the potential ways that lawmakers are looking at the situation and considering the question of whether Trump could or should face repercussions for what happened. In calling for this seditious act, the president has committed an unspeakable assault on our nation and our people. I join the Senate Democratic leader in calling on the vice president to remove this president by immediately invoking the 25th Amendment. If the vice president and the cabinet do not act, the Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment. That is the overwhelming sentiment of my caucus. Well, in terms of impeachment, even with the very small timetable that we have left in the president's term, that's off the table because actually the House and the Senate adjourned until basically inauguration, until January 19th. So that does not appear to be on the cards. The 25th Amendment example, um, there's reporting out there that suggests that is an issue being discussed by some senior officials. Um, And obviously, the Washington Post is doing reporting on that as well. I did find it a a remarkable development when uh, Representative Adam Kinzinger, he's a Republican from Illinois who has been a very vocal critic of the president in many ways, but especially in this and his unwillingness to acknowledge that he lost the election and his willingness to, you know, feed these baseless conspiracy lies. Congressman Kinzinger said on Thursday morning that, you know, with a heavy heart, I call for invoking the 25th Amendment and basically removing the president from office. We've heard that a lot from Democratic lawmakers. We've, you know, frankly heard it a lot from Democrats, you know, earlier on in the presidency. But for a Republican to say that is remarkable. And I'm wondering how much of that responsibility falls onto Republicans who will continue to be in the Senate even after President Trump leaves. It seems like in the ways that they have empowered and emboldened the president, they've also like opened this Pandora's box in terms of encouraging either actions or a way of thinking that leads to these actions that we saw at the Capitol. And like, are they going to do anything to prevent this from happening again? Are they going to do anything to like put all of this vitriol back in the box? I mean, clearly there is like a lip service desire, obviously, to never have instances like we saw at the Capitol never happen again. But I mean, look at the number of the president's supporters who were outside the Capitol yesterday and who believe everything that the president says. Trump may be out of office on, you know, as of 1201 on on January 20th, but his pull over the party, his pull over the base and his supporters is certainly not going to go away. And I think, you know, Senator Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska who has not been shy with his criticisms with the president, has said that none of his Republican colleagues have told him privately that they genuinely think this election was rigged, that it was flawed, that the president didn't lose. And I think that's right. These senators know better, but they also have political ambitions at play. And how they navigate this big part of their party that are just diehard Trump fans will be a dynamic that we're going to be definitely watching for the next four years. Sung Min Kim covers Congress and the White House for The Post. 
Good morning, I'm Muriel Bowser. I'm the mayor of Washington, D.C. I'm here to provide an update, uh, to provide the public with uh, the district's posture. We are still trying to figure out exactly what happened inside and outside the Capitol on Wednesday. Four people are reported dead. One of those people was a 35-year-old woman shot by Capitol Police outside the entrance to House Chambers. Since Wednesday afternoon, dozens of people have been arrested. On Thursday, they were facing charges of breaking curfew and unlawful entry, but those charges could change. They could be charged with any number of federal statutes, because remember, they'll be prosecuted federally because the Capitol is its federal property. Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. So, you know, criminal trespass could be one. I'm sure there are a number of statutes that cover some of the more violent acts that we saw, including destruction of property, interference with police. You know, if anyone attacked a police officer, they can be charged individually on that kind of a crime. There's also going to be some really interesting questions, maybe more will become an academic discussion. We'll see if these actually get prosecuted of whether you would actually apply the laws against sedition. Yeah. Can you remind me what sedition is? Because sure. that's the word that I hear a lot that is not actually applied. Yeah, it's, it's something that it sounds quite antique, doesn't it? Um, so basically, sedition just means conspiracy to overthrow or to put down the government. The definition literally says efforts to conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them. And I think this is the important part that maybe goes to what happened at the Capitol. Or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force hmm. to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof. Well, both of those things arguably occurred on January 6th. You had a group that was there and expressly for the purpose because they said this when they organized that they were coming to, as they put it, stop the seal and delay the count, were there to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. The Congress was in a joint session pursuant to the laws of the United States to receive electoral college votes from the states. And then the, the section of or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof. Well, obviously, they were doing that. They were coming. They were occupying the Capitol building contrary to the authority of the Capitol Police and the laws against trespassing that were in place. Now, politically speaking, would charging these people under the sedition laws be explosive? Of course it would. And there are certainly other statutes that seem to me to be perfectly applicable to what happened here and are used all the time when you're talking about people who, you know, get out of hand at protests or start becoming violent or destroy property uh, during a protest. The question of sedition comes up in part, though, because we're in this moment where these people are acting in many cases at the behest of politicians who are egging them on. A president who refuses to acknowledge mm -hmm. that he lost an election and is lying when he said it was fraudulent. So, you know, I don't know that the sedition statute will be brought out, but it's there. The other thing to keep in mind is that it's going to fall to a Biden Justice Department to prosecute these cases. These are going to be federal cases. Mm. You know, Merrick Garland, the judge, former Supreme Court nominee, Joe Biden has said he's going to nominate him for attorney general. So this kind of lands squarely on Merrick Garland's plate from the moment that he comes in is how do you handle these cases? And one thing that prosecutors and the leadership at Maine Justice are going to have to keep in mind is that if you prosecute some of these people, particularly people who might be seen as some of the ringleaders of this group, those are going to become hugely politically charged cases. Those 
defendants are going to become celebrities in mm-hmm. these movements of the Proud Boys and these other far-right movements. And they're going to Which be— Which is, I'm sure, the thing that many people want to avoid. Absolutely. That, it, you totally want to avoid that. And we have, you know, we have experience in this when we've looked at cases where, you know, terrorists from foreign terrorist organizations are prosecuted or white supremacists and white nationalists are prosecuted. These people become like folk heroes and they become part of mm-hmm. the tapestry of the whole narrative that develops— around them. In the cases of foreign terrorist organizations, I mean, everybody in the United States agrees al-Qaeda is bad, right? (laughs) There was a general agreement, I think, that people like Timothy McVeigh and his conspirators who destroyed the federal building in Oklahoma City were bad. There's not a general consensus that the people who marched on the Capitol yesterday were bad. So that's going to be a hugely politically and socially fraught moment when it comes to actually having to charge individuals. And I imagine that that will be weighing very much on the minds of prosecutors and Justice Department officials and to some degree guiding how they proceed. Well, we heard President-elect Joe Biden give a speech on Wednesday night where he talked about the violence at the Capitol, and, and he seemed to give an indication of how the Department of Justice might handle it. When Justice Garland and I were talking, we talked about, I think he raised it, the reason for the Justice Department was formed in the first place was back in 1870. We didn't have a Justice Department before that cabinet. It was formed in 1870 to enforce the Civil Rights Amendment that grew out of the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, to stand up to the Klan, to stand up to racism, to take on domestic terrorism. This original spirit must again guide and animate its work. So there's this issue of what's going to happen to these rioters, but there's also the issue of how they got there in the first place. And I'm curious, what was your first thought when you saw this mob of Trump supporters basically laying siege to the Capitol? Disbelief was actually my first thought. It was genuinely shocking to me Knowing all of the security mechanisms that have been in place in Washington and around the Capitol, to see that building just overrun by a mob, by a violent mob, I almost couldn't believe my eyes and had to really stop for a second and say, wait, is that the statuary hall? Wait, is that person actually sitting in one of the chambers in the well? It was just Shocking. Yeah, because I think it's it's shocking to all of us just visually to see these images, but also for people who have worked in the Capitol or happened to visit the Capitol. I mean, you know what the level of security is there, that there are armed guards outside at all hours of day and night in pretty significant numbers. And it just boggles the mind, like, how this was able to happen. So I, I guess I just want to get a sense of, like, what are the kinds of threats that the Capitol was built to withstand and that Capitol Police are supposed to be able to expect? Well, to answer that question, which is a great question, it helps to go back about 20 years to September 11th, 2001. And we'll recall that on that day, 
one of the planes was headed to Washington and may have been aimed at the Capitol building. And so immediately in the aftermath of those attacks, there was particular attention given to securing federal facilities, but also places where that were the centers of the seat of government and where the leaders of the government gathered. You know, on 9-11, the leadership of the Congress and the Senate were evacuated to undisclosed locations as part of a what's called a continuity of government out of fear that if they were killed, that, you know, leadership in the upper reaches of the federal government might be disabled. So after 9-11, every security kind of posture in Washington is devoted to securing these important buildings from assault from the outside. And so what Mm -hmm. that means is that the Capitol Police are now in a mode of having to physically fortify that building and to treat it as a terrorist target, as a place that people might try to invade or attack from the outside. You know, the Capitol building, and it still is to some degree like this, I mean, it is a place where the public comes and goes. The congressional offices on the perimeter of the Capitol itself especially, you know, you you can you can go, come and go from them without an ID. You can go meet your member of Congress. People call it the people's house, right? It, that it's yes. supposed to be this place where the regular people should feel welcome to come in and go talk to your congressman about whatever issue you, you want to talk about. That's right. And so the facilities are, you know, designed with that in mind. At the same time, when you're walking around in these buildings or even I ride my bike every week around the Capitol grounds, it's a beautiful place to ride. You can't escape the feeling and the, you know, the obvious understanding with your own eyes that you are in a fortified place with police everywhere, with barricades, with magnetometers at entrances. So, you know, I've never felt that I was out of the reach of law enforcement when I was in those buildings. And that's important to remember, too, because it's not as though the Capitol Police aren't used to dealing with large numbers of people, agitated people. I mean, they've had shooter situations on the Capitol grounds before. It's fairly Mm -hmm. routine to have to deal with protesters, with the rare kind of attacker or more violent threat, which, again, makes what happened on January 6th all the more baffling because This, while it was a very large crowd, was not so distinct and different from the kinds of crowds and threats that the Capitol Police have been dealing with for the past two decades. So then what do we know at this point about why all these layers of security failed in this in this instance? Well, there's a lot that we don't know, and it's important to keep that in mind. And as the you know, days go by, we're going to learn a lot more information. There seem to be some high altitude observations that I think explain what may have happened here. One is that there seems to have been just a numbers problem. The Capitol Police seem to have been overwhelmed and outmatched by the number of protesters who showed up in Washington and descended on the Capitol and the number of officers who were there to protect the Capitol. So at least in the initial phase of this invasion by this mob of people, there just weren't enough police officers to repel them. It also appears from images that we've seen and from reporting that the Post has done that there were not sufficient barricades that were set up around the perimeter of the Capitol. And usually what you would Mm -hmm. want to do in a situation like this is kind of start far out from the structure and have an initial set of barricades. And then as you get closer, have more of them and position your police force kind of closer to the building that you're trying to protect. It looks like, particularly on the west side of the Capitol, 
that there was really only one perimeter and it was just overrun mm. by the protesters immediately. And that's when you, which led to the images of them, you know, scaling the risers that are being set up for the inaugural ceremony on January 20th. So not enough physical security. Then you get into some more puzzling and frankly troubling issues. We've seen from video and from images what looks to be a very lackadaisical response by some Capitol Police officers where in one, there's an officer taking a selfie with an invader really inside the the Capitol building. There's other images where police appear to be moving light barricades out of the way of protesters. And and I think that's the one that is really perplexing people. I mean, I've seen that video and it's just, it's hard to understate how confusing it is that you have this mob of people seeming like they're trying to push past the barricades. And then rather than stand in a aggressive stance to tell them like, look, you can't go any further, they sort of just stand aside and they start moving the barricade and people just start flowing through and they don't really seem that concerned about it. Absolutely. I saw some people speculating, well, maybe this was some kind of effort of crowd control and they were trying to defuse the situation. You know, I've been on the Capitol grounds during protests before. I've never seen you know, police officers move a barricade and let people get closer to the building as a way of crowd control or diffusing tension. So that is genuinely confusing. And then, of course, we've all seen the really startling and frightening images of protesters breaking windows, pounding through glass indoors, and and breaching the Capitol itself. By the time that happens, once these people are inside the building, you know, the whole security posture changes. Now you're not dealing with trying to keep people at a perimeter. Now you've got a situation where actively they've overrun the building. And I think there, the first questions I would be looking to ask is, did the Capitol Police have to make a judgment call at that point? Do we try and physically repel them and protect the building, or do we get members of Congress and staff out of the building. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like they may have chosen option B because they did manage to get members and their staff out of there, also with the assistance of D.C. police. I I saw one very scary video of a police officer. I believe he was Capitol Police, but he might have been another type of police officer or security guard. But it was just like him with his baton and then this like mob of people coming in. And and I think it's worth pointing out that this officer was black, everyone else was white. And it just, he was in the situation where it seemed like he was afraid of just being attacked by this mob of people and, and running away in, in a way that to me felt very sympathetic and just sort of demonstrated how once these people got on the inside, you had these, you know, singular officers stationed around the building who all of a sudden are facing dozens and dozens of angry, screaming people who are clearly violent and at a loss of like how to deal with that. Absolutely. That video was probably the one that resonated with me the most for all of the reasons that you're articulating. You know, this this lone officer is there at this door you know, trying to shout these people back. And this crowd, we should remember too, which was, as far as I could tell, all white, and the officer was black, is essentially, you know, daring him. And you can see him at every landing on the stairs trying again to force them back. But the desperation and the panic on his face tells you that he knows in that moment he can't stop these people. And and to me, what was also very scary was the determination on the faces of these 
invaders and the understanding, you could kind of see it in their face, that they knew that they were going to win here. They knew they were getting in. And the message that this sends, which is so concerning to me, is that you can get into the Capitol. It's weakly defended. If you challenge police officers, even ones who are armed, they will get out of your way. And I worry about the signal that this is sending to other violent groups in the days to come, particularly as we approach the inauguration, the security of which has to be, I imagine at this point, being completely rethought. Well, that was going to be my next question. How confident can we be that Inauguration Day will actually go off safely and that Capitol Police and other police departments in the district, that they're going to be prepared to handle what could potentially or will likely come? I don't think right now we should have a high level of confidence that the Capitol Police and other law enforcement agencies can ensure that there won't be violent outbursts at the inauguration like what we saw on January 6th. I'm sure that at this point, they have gotten the message, if they didn't understand it before, that they're going to have to have a very large and organized police presence on the ground in Washington that is almost certainly going to have to be supported by federal personnel because, you know, this was sort of more than a dry run for some of these groups. Now they understand the lay of the land. They know the kind of presence they can expect to meet. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the mayor in the district, on federal authorities, on the National Guard, on the Capitol Police to basically put as many personnel out there as they can which is going to give inevitably the inauguration the feel of a more kind of militarized event. It'll have even more of a feeling of heightened security and tension than it normally does, which is really sad because it's supposed to be a really special day. I also just want to point out some of the conversation that I've seen among colleagues on the internet, even with my family members, of the disparity between how federal police officers, federal law enforcement treated what happened yesterday versus protests that we saw over the summer when these protesters who were largely peaceful were treated with tear gas. I was wondering if you could speak to why we might be seeing that disparity. Um... If the protesters who had descended on the Capitol yesterday were black, you would have seen a different show of force, I believe, from the Capitol Police. If they were far-left protesters, I think you would have seen a different show of force. And, you know, I say that with some trepidation because I don't want to prejudge the motives and <laughs> of some of these Capitol Police officers, but the behavior that I witnessed was so out of line for what you expect from security personnel, that I am left to conclude that there was something about the nature of this protest, of this group, that made Capitol Police officers take it less seriously. Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. As a Black man, as a Black reporter, it was hard for me to imagine that if the crowd was majority Black or all Black, that they would have been allowed to even get to the Capitol grounds, let alone scale the building, swap out flags, and bash in the windows, as we saw. 
Michael Bryce Sadler is one of our colleagues who was on the ground at the Capitol on Wednesday. He spoke to producer Jordan Marie Smith about what it was like. And what was the law enforcement response that you saw? What was law enforcement doing during all of this? I mean, as I was watching this play out, I guess thought back to what my colleagues on the post-local desk reported on experience during the summer, uh, during the protests uh, for George Floyd and for Black Lives Matter, uh, when protesters who were out in the streets were met with heavy police resistance, uh, shot with rubber bullets, met with violence and pepper spray, and there were actual clashes for people who were marching on the streets. And I compared that to what I saw firsthand on the Capitol grounds, which was people doing whatever they wanted quite literally doing whatever they wanted outside of the building, causing damage and destruction with no pushback. There was a period for at least one or two hours where you really couldn't see much of any law enforcement, and it wasn't until later in the evening when you were finally able to see some law enforcement come on Capitol grounds outside and push people completely off of the premises. Why do you think this predominantly white mob was able to do all of this in such a short amount of time and not face repercussions? Like, what are the societal implications of this? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question is why law enforcement wasn't better prepared for this. And I think that's something that we're going to learn more about in the coming days. But I recall hearing from one person who was out there who uh, I don't know if they had been inside the building, but they were part of causing the damage. And they turned to a, a friend or someone who they were with and said, no matter what happens, we were able to get inside that building in a matter of hours. We won. And it was hard for me not to think that there was some validity to that statement because they were able to do what they wanted to in a matter of hours with minimal pushback. And I don't think we fully have a complete sense yet of why that was so easy for them to do. Michael Bray Sadler is a local government reporter with The Post. He spoke to producer Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This is a fast-moving story, and things may have changed by the time you're hearing this podcast. For the latest, go to WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 